This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. This hour of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you in part by Courageous Legacy, the new film from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers, remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing. With 66 books and roughly 1,200 pages, the Bible has a lot of content for us to digest and understand and believe, but there are sections of God's Word that can be harder for us to understand than others. For example, this is just one example, Romans 10.9 is very straightforward. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Very straightforward. But what about Joshua 10.13, which says that after God gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, the son stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance upon its enemies. How in the world did the sun stand still? This is a little more complex. And these are the kinds of Bible questions that we are going to delve into today with Dr. Alex McFarland, cultural expert, apologist, conference speaker, and all around nice guy. He and Bert Harper are hosts of the radio show Exploring the Word, and they have put together a book with some straightforward answers to the toughest Bible questions, which is called 100 Bible Questions and Answers. Alex, just a joy to welcome you back. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Janet. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you. Now, I know we can't do, I know I talk fast, but I don't think we can get through 100 Bible questions in an hour. So we have to just pick a few and try to answer them, some easier, some harder. Are you up for it? Uh, I'll do my I'll do my best. I will. And, you know, you, you do sometimes talk rapidly, and I, from the South, talk painfully slowly. So we'll meet in the middle. How about that? Yeah, we'll balance each other out. I'll try not to go full auctioneer on you and, and you can keep <laughs> up. <laughs> All right. Well, Here let's, we yeah, let's, let's start with some of these questions that people don't normally talk about. There are some that are very important questions, a lot of great questions. Why are books no longer able to be added to the Bible? I thought that was a very important question because I hear this sometimes. People will say, why is it that we are limited to what the Bible has between both leather covers and we can't add any more of God's word to the Bible? What is the reason for that? Well, um, Christians believe that the canon of Scripture is complete uh, for one thing, we don't add books to the Bible because the Bible uh, concludes by saying don't add to or take away from. Yep. Uh, and, th- you know, this principle of the the completion of the canon and God, not man, cho- chose what was in the Bible. It's in Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, it says, you know, diminish not a word. We're not to take from it. And then uh, once the book of Revelation was written around 95 A.D., the, the New Testament canon was complete. We're not to add to it. And so uh, so the canon is complete, and, and we don't improve upon God's perfect work. Well, that's important, too, because we see some people today believing that 
even though the canon is closed, God still speaks in supernatural ways, in authoritative ways. And how do you react to some of these ideas that, boy, God spoke to me today in my quiet time and he told me something? I mean, there there's some really shaky ground sometimes that people will get on. Yeah, um, and, and while I understand that um, God does guide us, uh, and God, yes, God speaks to believers in the sense of the Holy Spirit uh, guiding the life of a Christian, even giving, you know, wisdom. But the the inspired Word of God, the wor- word inspiration means God breathed. And in Old and New Testaments, uh, we, we read where it says that uh, every Word of God is pure, in Proverbs chapter 30, um, Psalm 119, verse 160, it says God's judgments are forever true and righteous. Now, let me just say this. Merely because the Bible claims to be the Word of God, that's not our only reason for believing it is the Word of God. But we've got the testimony of Jesus, you know, John 10, 35, Christ said the Scripture cannot be broken. But um, Revelation 22, you know, Scripture concludes with this admonition we don't add to or take away. Here's the thing, though. Uh, the, The closing of the canon does not preclude the Holy Spirit from guiding believers, um, instructing believers, teaching believers. In fact, uh, 1 John 2.27 says, The Spirit of God that indwells us remains and will teach us all things. Yes. But it doesn't mean that that is on par with Scripture. You know, when God guides a believer to uh, a career path or uh, whom they should marry or uh you know, God guides a believer to share the gospel with somebody and they get saved. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian doesn't mean that that guidance is necessarily uh, Scripture. Yes. In fact, it's not. Yes. God's written revelation of the human race, which is about the Messiah, the kingdom of God, and how to get in, that uh, communique from the Lord to the human race is completed. Uh, what we need to do right now is not seek for new revelation— we need to learn and heed existing revelation. Amen. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's a good distinction that you made between the breathed out word of God and the Holy Spirit working and guiding the lives of believers. I'm really glad that you said it that way. Here's another question about the Bible, Alex. Why does the Gospel of Mark have additional verses that are disputed? This throws people for a loop sometimes when they first learn about this. What are we to make of that? Uh, you know, this is... Uh under the heading of textual criticism, because uh, the the last part of the Gospel of Mark contains some verses that are, you know, in some manuscripts and not in other manuscripts. Uh, I personally, I do accept what some scholars call the longer ending of Mark, um, because uh, well, they were, you know, affirmed by the early church, and they were they were known. Um, all throughout, and this is a kind of a deep subject called textual criticism. That's why I encourage people to go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., and you can see many of these old manuscripts. Read great books by people like F.F. F. Bruce. Yes. You know, the New Testament manuscripts, are they reliable? Uh, Craig Blomberg's book on the trustworthiness of the New Testament. Uh, you can trust your Bible. But 
this is a very exciting thing, and I want to give you, Janet, forgive me for kind of getting into the weeds on this a little bit, but uh, the, quote, longer ending of Mark that goes up through the 20th verse of Mark chapter 16, uh, for one thing, it is in the majority of manuscripts. It was affirmed by the early church, and it contains content harmonious with the rest of of the known corpus of of the gospel. Uh, And it contains the Great Commission, uh, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Um, There's no historical nor doctrinal reason really to omit or to disregard the last few verses of the gospel of Mark. Most scholars think Mark was the first gospel written the earliest but but let me say this the new testament was given by god circulated by the early church um and we've got to remember there were you know intense persecutions going on i don't think the fragments and the copies and the portions of copies should cause people to doubt the preservation of the new testament We've got to remember the context in which it was given. Uh, given the persecutions, and this is before electricity or the printing press, uh, God not only gave the Word, God preserved the Word. I, I think it's uh, amazing how um, <laughs> widely circulated the New Testament was mm. and how well-preserved it was given the, the time period in which it, it was given. Uh, so I don't think the fact that we have complete New Testaments, fragments. We have, you know, some 30,000 portions floating around. It shouldn't cause people to doubt the New Testament. Well, very Even good. the time it was written, I think it's amazing how the Bible has been preserved. Great answer. We're going to pause for a break. Alex McFarlane with us talking about 100 Bible questions and answers. Back in a moment on Janet Meffer Today. From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will, I will. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. When this young mom came to a preborn center, she was planning to have an abortion. But after receiving love and support and meeting her baby on ultrasound, she chose life. When I walked in for the ultrasound and I saw my baby and I heard his heartbeat, my mind changed completely. I couldn't do that to my baby. I decided to keep it. Preborn partners with clinics and cities with the highest abortion rates in the country. Will you help preborn save these precious lives? When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And that's just the beginning of the story. I know that with support and with God by my side, I'll be able to do this, not just for me, but for my baby. 
For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life. I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack, and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I tell you, I have the greatest job in the world. I really do. I get to bring on great people like Alex McFarland, a wonderful Christian apologist and author and conference speaker. And I get to just pepper him with Bible questions for this hour. You get to listen in. It's all part of his new book with Bert Harper called 100 Bible Questions and Answers. I've got you captive, Alex. It's awesome. I love it. Um, we were talking about the Bible and some of the questions that you address in this book, answers to important questions about the Bible itself. Let's dive a little bit into the alleged and I'm glad you put that word in there, alleged Bible contradictions. So here's one, for example, this is kind of a simple one, but people will be familiar with this verse, no doubt. Isaiah 45, seven, this is a verse in the Bible and in the King James version, it says it this way. I form the light. This is the Lord speaking. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, this is not when it uses this word evil and saying that the Lord creates evil. This can cause people to say, how is that even possible? Because God is not the author of sin. Does this have to do, though, with the translation of that word? Because there are other translations that have a different word in the place of evil. How do we explain it? Well, uh, good question. You know, God does not create moral evil, because in God there's no sin at all. It's, it's really um, the word for calamity. Now, you know, we know calamitous things happen, and we say this is bad, this is evil. But we know, whenever we have uh, a, a challenging text like this, uh, and, and what I would say, Janet, is are there texts that are challenging? Absolutely. There are texts that are difficult to understand, but a verified contradiction, no. There are no verified contradictions in the Bible. For instance, if the Bible said Jesus rose from the dead, and another verse said Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, those two incompatible statements would be irreconcilable. But when you look at the, the totality of God's revelation, and within Scripture we have God's revelation of himself and God's revelation of salvation truth, We know God, being eternal, has no sin. And God, unlike the God of Islam, the biblical God does not do evil. Uh, And so when Isaiah 45, 7, in the English translations, the King James rendering of that is, is, I would say, less than ideal. Uh, I create evil. It's really God, God formed the light. God created the darkness. God allows calamity to happen doesn't mean that God causes moral evil, but as the sovereign providential ruler of the world, God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's, um, he, and here's the beautiful thing about the, the biblical God. He presides over creation, and everything he does is in harmony with his righteous nature 
He doesn't do anything that is logically meaningless, and he doesn't override our free will. Humans have the ability to choose right and wrong, but God doesn't force us to do right or wrong. God, I think everything short of overriding our human responsibility, God God offers the right path, even urges us toward the right path. Um, but when somebody does right, God didn't force them to do right. And when somebody commits sin, God didn't force them to do that which is morally wrong. Yes. And it, it's in this reason that God is sovereign, but humans are responsible. It's in this context that we can actually legitimately have a relationship with God. Yes. Yes, that's important for you people to understand. Robot. Yeah, that you, you can have both God's sovereignty and man's responsibilities simultaneously. That's a really important thing for everyone to understand. Well, it is, and and I'll grant you that to to look at all of the known truth and to form our worldview in light of God's revelation, it it requires some intellectual heavy lifting. Yes, and um, Janet, one of the things that I, I really encourage all people, but especially the church to think and study God's Word, and to trust God for what He's revealed. Because um, in this soundbite social media culture, I mean, deep thought and intellectual maturity takes a little bit of investment. Um, I had a lady call into our radio show yesterday, and she said, you know, um, Jesus rose, but not physically. Uh, we, we think Jesus rose in some spiritual sense, but not physically. And I said, but, but really... That's not what Christ presented in Luke twenty four thirty nine. Jesus said, uh, you know, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. Jesus predicated his messiahship on him having physically risen from the dead. It's very interesting in the, in the Luke twenty four thirty nine where Christ talks about his resurrection. He says, a spirit, pneuma, does not have flesh and bones. And the word for flesh and bones, where Christ affirmed that he had physically risen, the, the word for flesh is sarx, from which we get like sarcophagus. And the word for bones was osteo. You know, we get words like osteoporosis. Right. So Christ rose physically. My point in sharing all that is this, Janet. We have to trust that God knows who he is. Hmm. And, and it behooves us to accept not only what God has revealed about himself, but what God has revealed about salvation. Good answer. That's excellent. Here's another alleged Bible contradiction, which is, I think, very interesting. You have in Genesis 1.11, the Bible saying, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees, each bearing fruit with seed according to its kind. This is on the third day, and it was so. And then you go to the next chapter, Genesis 2.5, and it says this, Now no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, nor had any plant of the field sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Are those two accounts contradictory, Alex? Uh, No, I I don't think so. Uh, What you've got here is, uh, in Genesis 2, you know, God had created the world, a place where plants could grow. Now, uh, the, the creation narratives show that God created, and it explains how uh, that creation would work and why Adam and Eve would be, you know, after the fall of Genesis 3, they would have to work for their, their food. Um, by the way, work is not the curse. The, the drudgery of work is, is uh, part of the curse. Mm-hmm. But um, 
you know, what, what happened, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are simply a restating of the steps of creation. Um, complementary details, but not contradictory details. Yes. Yeah, that's tr- so so that's an important thing. You have to really understand the context of the Bible. That is a very important part of interpreting the Bible, isn't it? Understanding the context of what you're reading. Yeah, and and so, you know, in Genesis 1, the the creation, you know, there there's a, a kind of a focus on the garden of Eden. Genesis 2 sort of retells the story of Genesis 1. And and by the way, Janet, uh you might with your knowledge of culture, uh, did you happen to see uh, a week ago was the passing of a man, very sad, but John Shelby Spong, yes. S-P-O-N-G. D- yes. Um, mm-hmm. um, e- even uh, <laughs> a number of Christians that are not in the habit of, you know, piling on, I mean, it's, it's pretty much universally acknowledged that Bishop Spong was a heretic. Yes. I mean, he went under the guise of Christianity— but he denied like every key Christian doctrine. He did. And he did not know the Lord. He was unsaved. And that's very sad. I'm sad for him. And what, what's doubly uh, tragic is all the millions of people he misled with his brazen rejection of God in the Bible. Uh, but he denied a literal Adam and Eve. And he would say these patronizing things like belief in Genesis is, you know, medieval and primitive, and we have to move on. And he was some, you know, years ago would have said he was a modernist or a liberal or progressive, but he was he was a heretic. He denied truth. But while um, a lot of the pseudo-intellectuals, like the late Bishop Spong, uh, just gleefully maligned Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's no reason not to take Genesis as literal history. There's the broad story, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, God said, let us make man in, in our image, male and female created he them, Genesis one twenty seven. Then in Genesis 2, you've got a restatement of the creation story, and it doesn't say that there, there were no previous plants, it, it just refers in this general sense to a plant of the field and herbs of the field. All right, Adam and Eve, while God had created vegetation, Adam and Eve, given the charge of overseeing the Garden of Eden, would have cultivated and planted more. But um, when you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Janet, it's interesting how it's just set forth as this, you know, prima facie basic truth. Yes. Um, I do believe it as literal truth. God spoke the world into existence. It was a literal Adam and Eve. And and by the way, even... uh, you know, uh, sociologists and, you know, ethno-sociologists believe that the human race as it now exists uh, descended from a single male-female pair. Hmm. Uh, I don't believe in any form of Darwinian evolution. I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. I believe in a literal fall. And while, you know, like I say, pseudo-intellectuals enjoy speaking of Genesis in patronizing terms and uh, as if those who believe in it are simpletons, uh, you know, I think they're going to they're going to find out that uh, when God gave the, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it, it was given as liter- literal truth, and there's no reason not to accept it as such. 
I agree. I, I agree with everything you said. And some of the problems that come up if you reject the literal truth of Genesis 1 through 11, for example, is number one, you're impugning God's character. He was the only witness to all of this. And you're saying that exactly. he's not telling us the truth or he's trying to obscure the truth with some weird myth, which I don't believe God does. But second of all, you have the problem of if there's no historical first Adam, how could the second Adam, Jesus Christ, mentioned in Romans, save you? Some problems there. We're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Alex McFarland. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, the new movie from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters now. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Dr. Alex McFarland is here, cultural expert, Christian apologist, conference speaker, and so many other things. And he and Bert Harper host Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. They are out with a really helpful book, 100 Bible Questions and Answers, and Alex is with us. Let's get into these Old Testament challenges a little bit. Alex, I know we don't have a lot of time to get through all these questions. Where did Cain get his wife? I hear that one a lot. How in the world did Cain have anybody to marry if he was the only the second generation of humans? Where did he get his wife? Well, great question. You know, undoubtedly, he married a sibling, as we all do. Right. Isn't that something? Okay. Uh, Cain killed Abel, you know, sad. The first siblings in history, and already we had a homicide on our hands. Yep. Isn't that something? Yeah. All right. The Bible says in Genesis 4.17, Cain knew his wife. That's kind of a biblical euphemism for it. They had physical relations, and a child was born named Enoch. All right, here's the thing. In Genesis 5, we read about Adam, uh, the birth of his son, Seth. It says the days of Adam were 800 years. He had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Okay, by the time of the Levitical law, like Leviticus 18, there were prohibitions against incest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as Adam and Eve, the first humans had children, Cain and Abel, but they had other children over this 930-year lifespan of Adam and Eve, uh, you know, the population would have multiplied. And so eventually, um, Cain would have married, you know, um, the other sons and daughters that we read about. So uh, one of uh, the daughters of Adam, maybe a niece, became his wife. Now, I will grant you, Janet, that to our modern ears, this sounds uh, two two things that people uh, maybe make a mistake on. For one thing, let me categorically say there were not other humans on the other side of the planet. And Cain stumbled upon another group of, you know, creation. You know, uh, everybody that's ever lived who's a human being is fully human and is fully descended from Adam and Eve. Yes. But of the, quote, other sons and daughters that we read about in Genesis 5, 4, and 5, over all these years, um, a female was born, grew up, and Cain married a relative. But as I said, 
in reality, everybody marries a relative because we're all related to Adam and Eve. Right, right. Yeah, and you made a good point when you brought up Leviticus 18, because people think about marrying your sister now is gross because it's incest. But if you think about why it was necessary for Cain to marry his sister, you have to get the human race going. So for a short period of well, time, that, that seems to be the way God designed it to go. Well, and, and let me just say this, too. Um, for instance, there are 126 breeds of dog, but in that original canine pair, uh, you know, the Bible says everything reproduces after its kind, mm-hmm. and there there are the taxonomic classifications are called phyla, P-H-Y-L-A. Okay, so even though there was, you know, a, a pair of canine or feline, uh, there was within the, the genetic male-female pair enough genetic potentiality for everything from a teacup chihuahua to mastiffs and Great Danes, right? Right. Okay, Adam and Eve, um, it's really amazing. Every human being, there are something like 30 trillion copies of your DNA. Uh-huh. And within that complex encrypted data, uh, your DNA is the, the, the schematic or the blueprint for you, your stature, your hair color, your eye color, and it's in every one of us. And uh, when um, when a genetic pool becomes isolated, recessive traits become dominant. That's why uh, people of European descent look a certain way. People of Asian descent look a certain way. People of Arabic descent, because when um, you know, taken to its extreme, we have inbreeding, uh, and there are you know, birth defects, that these recessive traits become dominant traits in genetics. But that's why I believe the Leviticus 18 prohibitions against incest, uh, because for one thing, God was protecting us from, you know, the birth defects that happen when a gene pool becomes too narrow. But all humans reproduce humans. One of the things that um, makes Darwinian evolution an impossibility is because of the genetic limitations. Um, An equine can't breed with a bovine. Mm -hmm. A horse can't breed with a cow. And so um, breeding only takes place within phyla. That's true in the animal and plant kingdoms. It's also true among the human race. A good point. That's a really good point. Let's go back to to Joshua. We've got a few minutes before we have to go to another break. Joshua 10 talks about the sun standing still, and there will be objections there saying, how in the world could the sun stand still? Is that even possible? How are we to understand that verse? Well, you know, most scholars would believe that what God did during that um, battle, and we're talking about uh, John, uh, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 10, 13 and 14, uh, God slowed down the rotation of the earth to make the, the, the daylight uh, longer. Um, I, I know that that's uh, really anthropomorphic language to say that, well, the sun stood still. But I think it, it doesn't compromise God's revelation to the fact that, you know, language is used that's pictorial language. Jesus said he was the, the true vine. He was the door, and we, we know that that's 
allegorical language, but a literal truth. Yes. So what it means is that uh, the sun, uh, the sun did not hasten to go down for a whole day. That's how the New American Standard renders it. But most scholars, I think about the late great Henry Morris, Ph.D. from Virginia Polytechnic Institute. Um, he and other scholars that accept creation, how did God make the daylight last longer? By slowing down the rotation of the earth. Now, how could that be? Well, Colossians tells us that by Jesus were all things created, and by him all things consist. And the word is cohesion. See, God not only created this universe, God runs the universe. Right. And by God's decree, uh, the universe operates even now. John, Janet, I was a, a new believer when I was in college, and I remember a science class I had, they were talking about, um, you know, the, the bonds, why why does matter hang together? How, why are there these these bonds at the microcosmic level, the subatomic level? Um, believe me, I'm keenly aware that secularists would scoff at what I'm about to say. The reason that this enigmatic cohesion of everything hanging together and operating is because God decrees it to be so. Right. Uh, it, what's a mystery to the physicalists is is revelation to the one who accepts God's word. If God holds this universe together, and I believe He does, then He could the twenty three degree tilt of the Earth and the rotation. He could slow it down, making there appear to be more daylight, so God's people could win a battle, Israel could be preserved, and our Messiah would one day come. That's right. That's exactly right. You can't view the world as a naturalist would do. You have to understand the authority of Scripture. And it also points out, it would seem, Alex, to me, that when you look at a verse and take it at face value and you don't understand the background, the context, or even what the language is saying, because you might not understand the original languages, it's good to dig into it and to get an answer. You know, for example, you think about the Lord saying about a mustard seed, that it's the smallest of all the seeds. And people have tried to make an issue of the fact that, no, that's it's not actually true. We've discovered smaller seeds. Well, the, the the understanding was this is what the people he was speaking to understood as the smallest seed. So when you don't understand mm-hmm. what's going on, then you can get confused, which is exactly why we enjoy having you with us. Alex McFarlane, we're going to take another break. Coming back with 100 Bible questions and answers. Stay with us on Janet Muffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. 
you suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's Word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back with Alex McFarland, wonderful apologist and conference speaker and radio host over at Exploring the Word, also author with Bert Harper, his co-host of Exploring the Word, of a great book, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. We're diving in now, Alex, as we're winding things down uh, into the New Testament questions, a few I want to get to. One of the main ones you address that I think is very important for us to really understand is, did James, the book of James, teach a works-based salvation? And and James, in writing it, did he teach a works-based salvation when he claimed that faith without works is dead? Here's another, I'll tag this on as well. James 2.24, this is another verse people will ask about, says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I know some Roman Catholics have taken that as, see, you Protestants are wrong. But then you go to verses like Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So there are some who will say, does the Bible contradict itself and who's right? What are we to make of James's statement about faith and works? Well, uh, God bless you, Janet, for asking these questions. Uh, let me say, uh, there's this old saying that a text out of context is a proof text. And uh, so if we look at all of the verses that speak to our personal relationship with Christ and how we're forgiven. Clearly, you know, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, uh, 8 through 10, uh, we are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by putting our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, if, if James were the only book we had about salvation, we might be tempted to conclude that some meritorious effort of our own contributed to our salvation. But we look at all of the verses and we read that it's, it's Jesus who paid our sin debt on the cross and we put our faith in Jesus. Now, uh, if we are saved, good works should follow, right? Yes. But um, let, let me just say this, that uh, it's the works that validate the faith and salvation that's taken place. The work of Christ 
atoned for our guilt before God, but if we're truly converted, then works would follow. And so, uh, you know, God doesn't contradict himself on this. But, um, Janet, let, let me say, for a lot of people today, it's almost like God is guilty until proven innocent. Mm. Years and years ago, there was a C.S. Lewis book, a collection of essays called God in the Dock, mm-hmm. D-O-C-K. Mm-hmm. And, and what Lewis meant by that title was dock it. In other words, God is on the witness stand having to defend himself. And um, by the way, the intro to that book I really love because, and this is you know 60 years ago, but Lewis said that uh, liberal clergy, quote, undermine and deny the very truths they are paid to uphold. True. And, and so <laughs> in doing this book of 100 Questions, it's published by Broad Street. You can find it anywhere. It's uh, 200 and some pages of answers to questions like this. Um, it's because in the minds of a lot of moderns, Janet, God is guilty until proven innocent. And uh, I'm just going to say this. I would love your thought, because, Janet, I've got to say this. I hugely respect you as a thinker. I really do. And you and I have known each other for, I don't know, 15 years, I suppose. Um, I think—now, you feel free to push back on this, okay? <laughs> okay. I think in the Word of God— there is almost some intentional ambiguity hmm. for two reasons. Now, clearly, Jesus is the Son of God. You put your trust in Christ. You're born again, secure in Christ. But I think it's almost like within the Word of God, there's enough to give us assurance. It's clear enough to give us reassurance, but vague enough to keep us on our toes. Hmm. But almost some of this built-in occasional ambiguity, it's because God knows our heart. And I want to say to every one of your listeners, Janet, and I want your response. If you're coming to the Bible with a, you're, you're trying to put God in checkmate, and you're looking for a way to accuse God, aha, I gotcha. God, you made a mistake. Then, then the Bible is going to be this inscrutable puzzle to you. Hmm. But if you're coming to God and you say, Lord, I need you, uh, Lord, I believe, help me, like Psalm 119.18, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. If you're coming to God in humility, looking for truth, you'll find it. If you're trying to find an accusation against God, the word will be shut up to you. And so, Janet, my point is the Bible is clear enough for the honest seeker to find the Savior, but it's um, God will not be trifled with. Yes. And if you're coming with an eye that God is guilty until proven innocent, I think you're going to find the Bible to be a real challenge. What, what do you say, Janet? Oh, yeah, I think you're making some really good points there, Alex. What came to my mind as you were raising that issue was the fact that when Jesus told parables, it didn't always make his point more clear. It made it less clear. And so mm-hmm. people couldn't understand. And he even explained, this is for he who has ears to hear and made that point so clearly in the Gospels that those who have ears to hear will understand what he's saying. Now, it doesn't mean that all the disciples fully understood what he was predicting about his own death and resurrection, that that came later on. But I, I go back to that. I mean, there. And I was telling this story uh, in one of the speeches that I gave at one point. I had gone to a Bible study with a colleague several, well, a number of years ago, and it was a liberal church, and they were studying the parable of the sower. 
And the parable of the mm-hmm. sower, what's so interesting about it is in several of the Gospels, Jesus not only tells the parable of the sower, he explains exactly what it means. So when the, you know, the seed fell on uh, the ground and the birds grabbed it, or it fell on the good ground and it sprung up and it grew. And he explains exactly what this means, the word of God having an effect in different people's lives. And at this liberal Bible study, these people were completely flummoxed. And I couldn't believe it at the oh, yeah. time. I said, but, but Jesus is explaining exactly what it means. It was lost on them. And that's when it really hit me. Lord, you really were telling us the truth, as you always do, that he who has ears to hear will understand. And, that's, and that is mm-hmm. where we need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the Bible. That's such an important thing for people to get. You, you know, when I was at Liberty University, uh, it was my privilege to take a class under Etta Linneman. Uh, Etta Linneman was a German theologian who studied under Rudolf Bultmann. Mm. And Rudolf Bultmann was a fierce critic of the Bible, a liberal. And um, in, in her later years, she died, I think, in about 2009. But Linneman uh, became a defender of the Bible. You know, she grew up and, and her professional career had been under these German critics of the Bible. And she told this story, I'll never forget, she told the story in a class how, you know, Dr. Bultmann and all the German higher critics were so scholarly, and they trashed the Bible and Jesus. And she one day was in some German town, and she saw a church, and she went in. And she said there was a man up there speaking, and he made the Bible come alive, and she had never heard such teaching. And suddenly it was so clear that the theme of the Bible is Jesus, and he is deity, and by faith in Jesus, we're born again. And she went up, and she had never—all of her scholars, like Boltmann, had never made the Bible come alive. And she asked the the preacher, where did you go to school? You're the most knowledgeable Bible scholar I've ever heard. And he said, oh, I've never been to any education. It was like a farmer. But see, the difference— he had the Spirit of God in him. Yes. Because, as like Jesus said, hearing they will not hear. The pe- these people's ears have waxed fat. <laughs> and my thing about it, like with, uh, um, you know, Bart Ehrman yes. or Richard Dawkins yes. or, you know, the, um, the skeptics of today, if, if you come to the Bible and your, your agenda is you're going to put God in checkmate and you're going to ferret through Scripture till you find what you think from your human perspective is a contradiction, uh, you're not you're not going to be able to crack the code. But if you're if you come and you say, God, um, I'm a sinner. I'm I'm sorry for my sins. I need you, Lord, help me. Then God, in His mercy, will open up truth to you. But so many today, Janet, you and I know. And look, I, I was a lost sinner. I got saved when I was in college at 21. So many today think they're smarter than God, they're more righteous than Christ, they're, they, they're more just than a holy God, and they don't find truth because they were never looking for it in the first place. Isn't that incredible? Well, you can read all of these great questions and answers in 100 Bible Questions and Answers, the book by Alex McFarlane, my guest, and Bert Harper. Alex, always a joy to talk to you. Thank you for being with us again. It was just great to have you. God bless you, Janet. Thanks. God bless you, too. Thanks again. This hour, Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie.
Thank you for being with us. God bless you. And we'll see you next time.